The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. The wicked are proudly in hot pursuit of those who suffer. Let them get caught in the very same schemes they've thought up. The wicked brag about their body's cravings. The greedy reject the Lord, cursing. At the peak of their wrath, the wicked do not seek God. This is the word black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama MB, joined today by the wonderful Char and Matt. Now, Char, you will remember from our episode on Isaac. Char, would you catch the folks up on what you're doing these days on your wonderful podcast, Barefoot to Emmaus? Absolutely. Byron and I are also in a bit of a hiatus stage right now because Byron's living in Japan, working at a church doing youth ministry. But we're still putting up some updates, putting up some episodes that have been on the backlog. And pretty soon, once we're both up to a steady rhythm, we'll be reintroducing the next season of Barefoot Timaeus. Awesome. Awesome. I always look forward to new episodes. So I think I'm like three quarters of the way caught up, but not quite all the way. I'm honored. We're joined by Matt, who is just a wonderful part of our Discord community. And a couple of episodes ago, sent me this essay that I thought was just fantastic. And so I thought, I got to get this guy on to talk more about the Bible so that we can continue this. So Matt, would you introduce yourselves to our folks, your political tendency, your religious background, and what you're doing these days? So my name is Matt. Political tendency would be democratic socialist, religious affiliation, part of the Presbyterian Church USA. I'm actually under care of my presbytery, meaning I'm going through the ordination process. So hope to be a pastor someday, but working full-time seminary part-time. So I write a lot of essays. <laughs> Including essays about this podcast, So, <laughs> which, which was just incredible. I love when people just like think about anything that I've said in this podcast, but to receive an essay was truly an honor. So <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> and also, there are a couple of random people on Reddit who have posted essays as well. Please reach out and, <laughs> and come on to the show. I would love to have you all as well. We're going to go ahead and jump into this rather long text because it's important to have all of it in context. Please hang on there for a quick second as we read. Let's begin. Genesis 27 through 28, 9. When Isaac had grown old and his eyesight was failing, he summoned his elder son Esau and said to him, My son, And Esau said, I'm here. He said, I'm old and don't know when I will die. So now take your hunting gear, your bow and quiver of arrows. Go out to the field and hunt game for me. Make me the delicious food that I love and bring it to me so that I can eat. Then I can bless you before I die. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau went out to the field to hunt game to bring back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I just heard your father saying to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and make me some delicious food so that I can eat, and I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me, to what I am telling you to do. Go to the flock and get me two healthy young goats so that I can prepare them as the delicious food your father loves. You can bring it to your father. He will eat, and then he will bless you before he dies. Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, 
My brother Esau is a hairy man, but I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me and thinks I'm making fun of him? I will be cursed instead of blessed. His mother said to him, Your curse will be on me, my son. Just listen to me. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made the delicious food that his father loved. Rebekah took her older son Esau's favorite clothes that were in the house with her, and she put them on her younger son Jacob. On his arms and smooth neck, she put the hide of the young goats, and the delicious food and the bread she had made she put under her son's hands. Jacob went to his father and said, My father. And he said, I'm here. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your oldest son. I've made what you asked me to. Sit up and eat some of the game so that you can bless me. Isaac said to his son, How can you find this so quickly, my son? He said, The Lord your God led me right to it. Isaac said to Jacob, Come here and let me touch you, my son. Are you my son Esau or not? So Jacob approached his father Isaac, and Isaac touched him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the arms are Esau's arms. Isaac didn't recognize him because his arms were hairy like Esau's arms, so he blessed him. Isaac said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. Isaac said, Bring some food here and let me eat some of my son's game so I can bless you. Jacob put it before him and he ate, and he brought him wine and he drank. His father Isaac said to him, Come here and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. When Isaac smelled the scent of his clothes, he blessed him. See, the scent of my son is like the scent of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you showers from the sky, olive oil from the earth, plenty of grain and new wine. May the nations serve you. May peoples bow down to you. Be the most powerful man among your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you will be blessed. After Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and just as Jacob left his father Isaac, his brother Esau came back from his hunt. He too made some delicious food, brought it to his father, and said, Let my father sit up and eat from his son's game, so that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he said, I'm your son, your oldest son, Esau. Isaac was so shocked that he trembled violently. He said, Who is the hunter just here with game? He brought me food, and I ate all of it before you came. I blessed him, and he will stay blessed. When Esau heard what his father said, he let out a loud, agonizing cry and wept bitterly. He said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. Isaac said, Your brother has already come deceitfully and has taken your blessing. Esau said, Isn't this why he's called Jacob? He's taken me twice now. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. He continued, Haven't you saved a blessing for me? Isaac replied to Esau, I've already made him more powerful than you, and I've made all of his brothers his servants. I've made him strong with grain and wine. What can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you really only have one blessing, father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau wept loudly. His father Isaac responded and said to him, Now you will make a home far away from the olive groves of the earth, far away from the showers of the sky above. You will live by your sword. You will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will tear away his harness from your neck. Esau was furious at Jacob because his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, When the period of mourning for the death of my father is over, I will kill my brother. Rebekah was told what her older son Esau was planning. So she summoned her younger son Jacob and said to him, 
Esau, your brother, is planning revenge. He plans to kill you. So now, my son, listen to me. Get up and escape to my brother Laban and Haran. Live with him for a short while until your brother's rage subsides, until your brother's anger at you goes away and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send for you and bring you back from there. Why should I suffer the loss of both of you on one day? Rebekah then said to Isaac, I really loathe these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women, like the women of this land, why should I go on living? So Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and gave him these orders. Don't marry a Canaanite woman. Get up and go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethaul, your mother's father. And once there, marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty will bless you, make you fertile, and give you many descendants, so that you will become a large group of peoples. God will give you and your descendants Abraham's blessing, so that you will own the land in which you are now immigrants, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob off, and he traveled to Padam Aram, to Laban, son of Bethaul the Aramean, and brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Esau understood that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to marry a woman from there. He recognized that when Isaac blessed Jacob, he ordered him, don't marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had listened to his father and mother and gone to Padam Aram. Esau realized that his father Isaac considered Canaanite women unacceptable. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, daughter of Abraham's son Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth, in addition to his other wives. So this text is like I say every time, a little bit weird, right? (laughs) I think it's one of the great trickster stories that we see in the Bible. In nearly every religion, there are trickster characters, these people who come in and do these funky things, like Loki, right, is probably the most famous in our current time period. Joker is another example of this sort of trickster character who comes in and does the opposite of what you expect. And here in the story of Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Esau, you see Isaac, whose name is Laughter, right? This person who you'd kind of expect to be the person doing the joke instead being the butt of the joke. And I just think it's so interesting here because the names, Jacob, Esau, and Isaac, Isaac is the joke, is the laughter. Jacob is the one who grabs the usurper, all those sort of things. And Esau is dirt, land, right? And so Jacob is the one who usurps the land from Esau as some sort of joke. I'm glad to hear you call it a trickster story because I've not heard that very much elsewhere, but in my own thought, I think this story and a lot of the Jacob stories make sense if you just start substituting Looney Tunes characters in (laughs) for all the characters and the stories, right? Because American culture, we don't think of trickster heroes as heroes as much. Looney Tunes is really the accessible media for a lot of us to kind of make sense of that. I, I come from a background that takes very literally... You know, when Esau says it's, you know, right that he's named Jacob. And I think reading the story, we're meant to actually see Jacob in a positive light. As a trickster hero, what he's doing is is a good thing. I would add that one of the details that makes this story so fascinating is that we have somewhat of an antihero. You know, and we do have traditions of tricksters. Even Jesus is considered by some theologians to be a trickster. And we can see the way that he usurps common expectations of religion, common expectations of divinity. But it's not a character that we're supposed to sit with lightly. It's not a character that earns our affection. And I think we'll get into this more of why that nuance is so important to this story. Do do we actually root for this guy? Or is this something where we're supposed to be troubled by the fact that Jacob is stealing from Esau what is quote-unquote rightfully Esau's? 
You know, I, I think uh, in common rabbinic tradition, there is teaching through lived experience and stories meant to evoke many layers of how we might move that there are meant to be twists and turns to the story that catch us off guard because those so often are where the teaching is communicated most clearly and most profoundly. And so I think in the story, we're meant to be uncomfortable. We're meant to hear about Jacob first and foremost as the lesser. We have the great and mighty first twin who is born, who uh, is first out and, you know, has earned in this patriarchal society the role of the firstborn son. He is meant to be seen as the hero, and yet the story is not about Esau ultimately. It's about the secondborn uh, who may have even been stuck, left clinging, grasping, and finds himself continuing this trickster path of grappling for some sense of security, some sense of purpose in his life. Yeah, I can't, I don't read in the rabbinic literature, I can't speak to what would be the Jewish perspective, but I would, I mean, I root for Jacob, I don't know if I'm supposed to, I don't know what that says about me, but I I would imagine we're, we're meant to root for him because with these great stories of, you know, these founding, you know, parents of the people of Israel, that's an awfully weird story to tell about your ancestors to basically say, and they were a dick, you know? <laughs> and so yeah. I think some of that's cultural distance, maybe, where where we look at it with different eyes and what we bring to the text, we have different values of what's happening. Absolutely. Char, I love what you were saying about the fact that, like, Esau has earned this place by the happenstance of birth, right? But that is, according to this ancient system of justice, how things are supposed to go. It's a very conservative conception of justice, that the way that things are ordered in our society are the way that things are supposed to go. And if they don't go that way, it's not supposed to be that way, right? In college, I got all of these classics professors who were trying to instill the Roman virtues, right? And claimed that the Roman virtues were Christian virtues, where justice is not about lifting up the lowly. It's about ensuring that the current order is upheld and people are left alone to do their own devices, right? But Jacob doesn't allow that story to continue here, right? And I should say, not really Jacob, Rebecca. Jacob is not an actor active participant in most of this. It's mostly Rebecca doing these things, which, you know, we need to talk about gender and the patriarchy as they're playing into these as well. But this is a story that I think is told not just about Jacob, but about Jacob's other name, Israel. The people of Israel are the underdog. They are the little brother of the rest of the world. And yet they have the audacity to say, our God has said that we will be in charge and that the people of God will be the people who ultimately win the victory in the end. It's definitely a subversion for Jacob to come out victorious, and I think a little bit of a weird one, if I'm not mistaken, because in the Mosaic Law, you know, primogenitors, the fancy, since we're going to use you know medieval stuff, primogenitors, the term you know where eldest son would inherit the largest portion, I believe, is actually part of the Mosaic Law. So it almost seems rather arbitrary um, that here, you know, maybe if I want to be Paul, uh, it's before the law, so eh. but you know, it just seems rather arbitrary uh, for for God to be be doing that here. Yeah. In this sense of justice, I do want to speak to this though, Micah, that it may seem archaic and conservative for the firstborn to receive and be bestowed with this honor, lineage, and wealth too, that the material wealth, you know, they receive this double portion as is described in 
the book of Deuteronomy in some places. And what is important to understand with this too is that it's not just an extra privilege, but it is meant to be correlated with an extra responsibility. The firstborn was meant to be, uh, in many ways, continuing the role that the patriarch had, which was to be leading, ruling, and caring for their people. And so this double portion or the blessing that Esau was to receive came in tandem with the responsibility of care. And so I think we might even be able to look at this story and ask the question, and there isn't a ton of detail about Esau in the beginning here, but ask the question, is he fulfilling his older brother responsibility? Is he truly fulfilling and honoring God by filling the role of the firstborn son well? Because I don't see that. You know, I see a younger brother in, you know, biological terms is probably the same age, (laughs) you know, um, when they were conceived and whatnot, but who is left behind and experiences this major sense of isolation and dejection. So I think that's another aspect to consider with the story that maybe Esau in his role as firstborn son, as inheritor of the patriarchy, I say this, you know, in, in the, not the modern sense, but in the then sense, he was failing his duties. Absolutely. And related to that patriarchy, right, is the fact that that system in the modern sense <laughs> is that that system was set up specifically to protect the widow, to protect the wife who generally outlives a man, typically because marriages were between older men and younger women. But this story is also played out in the life of Jesus, right? That Jesus is the firstborn and Jesus has this responsibility to take care of his mother that on the cross he gives to John. And this is the beloved disciple. And this is the passage that's often pointed to to say that John and Jesus had this special relationship because who would you pass on the responsibility of your mother to but someone that you're extremely close to. Now, in this podcast, we're not going to get on into this specific special relationship that John had with Jesus, but there is this responsibility of care to the mother. I I also think that it's so interesting as we're talking about that, the different kind of roles that are being played out in the relationship between Jacob and Esau that reflect the relationship between Isaac and Rebekah, where Rebekah is his wife, right? Right? And Isaac is not the most typically masculine character. In a lot of ways, he's very submissive. In a lot of ways, he's very passive. And that doesn't fit our modern definition of masculinity. It could very well fit an ancient definition of masculinity in a, in a Jewish concept of gender that was much broader than ours, that wasn't so divided into male and, and female binaries. But Jacob very much so does not fit into that role of masculinity. He is a chef. He is the one who stays behind. He is the one that tends to the garden. He is fulfilling the the feminine roles here versus Esau, who's the big, manly, dirty guy who goes out to do all of these things. And um, I am not an anthropologist by any means, but I think it's L or Snorkel have pointed out in the past that the vast majority of calories that you would actually receive would be through the gatherers, not through the hunters. The hunters would go out to get the big protein, but the gatherers were the ones providing the vast majority of the meal. And so, Char, as you were saying, is Esau living up to his part of the deal? Jacob is probably providing the vast majority of calories for their diet. Esau is just going out and being the one who shows off his big manly muscles. And it's not actually that useful to the family. (laughs) Well, and even just to jump in with that a little bit too, right? So Rebecca goes and gets the goat, right? To prepare like game. So it's, uh, does Esau need to hunt or does Esau like to hunt? You know, they had 
meat available for the blessing meal without Esau even going out to hunt for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the other part of that that I want to talk about is Rebecca as the primary actor. And that God just accepts this. Like, God just totally accepts that Jacob has cheated Esau out of his birthright and out of these other things. And God chooses to continue Isaac's line through Jacob rather than through Esau, even though that's the way it quote unquote should have been, right? And here, I want to make the direct comparison between Rebecca and God, that that Rebecca is playing the role of the trickster God, the one who, even if there is somebody else who's doing the acting, right? But here, Rebecca is the primary actor. Rebecca is the one who's doing all these things. Rebecca is the one who's leading Israel here and leading Israel in a way that seems subversive, that seems like it usurps the natural boundaries of power, just like God will come to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of all of these different things where the system of power seems to be set up. And only through magic tricks do we actually escape. And the point when Jacob becomes Israel, becomes the father of the nation of Israel, is he refuses to let go of God. His trickster role takes on not just an interpersonal one, but inter-divine role, where his wrestling, you can almost say it's rewarded. There is something about the posture that he takes towards God that is met with God's favor. Absolutely. Talking about Rebecca in that role, I mean, puts pushes me back to Genesis 25, 25, 23. I think it is worth bringing back up. If we're looking at this in a canon criticism way, if we take the story as complete as it is, Rebecca's going against what would be the common practice, but she's not going against what has been promised about her children. And so in a manner, now I'd push back against the word cheated, you know, cheated out of the blessing in a manner, Jacob's been cheated. If he has to buy the birthright, if he has to resort to trickery to get the blessing that, if we take the story at face value, is received to us that has been promised for him from before his birth. And so Rebecca, to me, you know, as a trickster here, is very heroic in that way, you know, and, and to do the bad thing where we put Christ on top of the story. You know, she very much, to me, is a Christ figure in the sense when Jacob says, okay, what if he curses me? And she says, well, let the curse be on me. You know, so she'll take the curse upon herself for God's promises of life for Jacob to be able to be fulfilled. That insight just throws me back back to the opposite side in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is trying to figure out, well, God said that something was going to happen, and it doesn't seem like that's the way that things are going. I'm going to solve this problem on my own. Abraham, go marry Hagar, have a kid, and this will be accomplished, right? Matt, what you're suggesting here is that Rebecca is taking the promises of God into her own hands, and in the story of Sarah and Abraham, Sarah is is rebuked for that, whereas in this story, Rebecca seems only to be worthy of praise because of what she's done. I'm not as pleased with her solution just because it involves a kind of marriage that involves slavery and is very bad for women. Just the general idea of taking into your own hands. I mean, the way I tend to view that is, you know, okay, it's not happening, it's not happening, it's not happening, but God gave you this promise. So let's use this, what would have been culturally acceptable solution that we should condemn today, but let's do this and you can have your heir. And God says, no, 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 no. I've also chosen and you, Sarah. You know, Ishmael can live, that's fine, uh, but I've also chosen you. This is going to be your kid. And I, I mean, I don't see her as rebuked. I, I hear her talked about that way. I don't read her as being rebuked in the text necessarily. I find it really fascinating what you're saying, because that is such a minority opinion in terms of circles that I've been around. And I really appreciate getting to hear that alternate perspective. I do think that proper biblical criticism, you know, again, adhering to the tradition, the rabbinic tradition is to have many different perspectives that are held in tension. 
and communicated. So, you know, commonly the, the story of Genesis 22, where we see the supposed or near sacrifice of Isaac, many have understood this to be a point where the lack of faithfulness is then now put to the test and given a chance of redemption. There are different ways of interpreting the story. I just love that idea that the difference was that Sarah counted herself out of the promise, that Sarah saw this amazing thing that God was going to do. And instead of saying, I'm a part of that, so I'm going to take agency within this, she just said, oh, I can't be included in this. This isn't happening fast enough. I'm not really a part of it. I'm not the purpose of this. So I'm going to push this off and I'm going to find my own solution to this problem that at least gets it halfway. And Rebecca needs to be the person who is the the forward actor here, right? Rebecca doesn't say, well, it'll be taken care of, right? She takes destiny into her own hands. It's what I call where the red fern grows theology, where the kid is going to his grandpa and going to God and constantly saying, God, give me a puppy. And he's not getting a puppy magically. And so his grandpa says, well, sometimes you have to go and meet God halfway. And so the kid goes out and he works his butt off and he earns some money and he goes to buy one puppy. And when he goes to buy the one puppy, the owner gives him two. And, uh, (laughs) but that idea that you're meeting God halfway, you know, in Rebecca's case, even further than that, 75% of the way and saying like, God, you said this is going to happen. I'm making it happen because my husband is too much of a jerk for me to not do it this way. (laughs) So, and, you know, I think that one of the things that I love about the Jewish tradition is that Rebecca is a prophet, that God revealed this plan to her and she was willing to go out and make it happen, right? So many of the prophets do play acts, right? What we would call today performance art, right? Ezekiel goes out and covers himself in mud and grime and whatnot. Is it Hosea who goes through this very public divorce and, you know, all these sorts of things to try and illustrate the way that Israel is being divided? And here, Rebecca is participating in the same sort of thing where she's covering uh, Jacob, this boy who is a soft boy, is not this tough person, but puts on that sort of persona to get the blessing that was only going to come to him by pretending to be something he's not. And then when he's gotten that blessing, then he is free to go and be who he is, a soft boy who will go and work for seven years because he's so madly in love with this woman. And then when he gets tricked and when when the trickster gets tricked, he will go and work another seven years for this woman because he just loves her so much, right? I mean, I hadn't heard, maybe heard in a meaningful way, Rebecca referred to as a prophet, but I do you know, remember earlier episodes it being pointed out, God doesn't talk to Sarah, God talks to Hagar. Um, and so this this is the next time that that happens, is that God does give that promise. Rebecca actually has this prophecy that she gets. So you, say, you know, you said where he's, Isaac's very passive. You know, I think that just highlights it more. God even seemed to like his wife better. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about the prophecy that Rebecca receives is it's not a positive one. It's not one that should elicit in us a sense of, joy. He came out of desperation, just like her son, saying, why is this happening to me? Maybe she asked this question many, many times, and she just kept knocking until that door was opened. This is demonstrative of the lineage of Israel, that even before Israel or Jacob wrestles with God, Rebecca was wrestling with God, wrestling, why am I going through this? Why am I going through this? Until God finally communicates to her. And then this message is one of violence. It's one of division, at least on the you know initial onset. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within, you will be separated. You know, this is one of, of warring and takes aside, which is a really um, bold thing for her to do as a mother, <laughs> you know, in, in a way that maybe in a modern sensibility, we might 
push back against her. We might question whether that was something that was in fact righteous of her to choose and favor one of her children. But again, what I see in the story is the child that she favors, and Matt, you pointed out that she could have been responding to the prophecy. I might actually say that the prophecy was such because of her character. The prophecy was already understanding how she would treat her children and then responding in kind. And that she was the kind of mother who saw the child who was the soft boy, the child who was being left behind, the child who was not going to make it on his own, said, this is my responsibility to love and care for and make sure that Jacob's okay. Yeah, you know, there's some conversation about whether or not Jacob is clinging on to Esau is some sort of code for disability. In disability theology circles, there's some conversation around that. I am not an expert in disability theology. I think it's a fascinating realm of study that I can recommend you a lot of good people to talk about. Um, And we will have somebody on to talk about disability liberation theology in the next couple of months. But the fact that Jacob here is clearly this weaker brother in some way, that clearly he is not to the same level. The sort of coding that is being translated in that is, again, just so demonstrative of the way of God, that God takes, first off, Abraham, who's not a good guy, and still takes him along and makes this promise with him. And Isaac, this person who is almost going to be sacrificed for what it seems like is Abraham's sins or failures or something— And then God, again, chooses the lesser. God chooses the one we don't expect. God doesn't choose the best of all best possibilities. God chooses the one that God chooses. And that is the lower down. That is the lesser person. And just the way that that is the portrait of the rest of the scriptures. A book that is written by an oppressed people facing oppression, that God is a God who chooses them anyway. There are a couple ways that we can look at that detail. One is, and I absolutely believe this from a liberation theology perspective, that on the basis of being the one who is oppressed, on the basis of being the one who is marginalized and treated as lesser, that God automatically sides with them. I wholeheartedly believe that. And I also think that there's a critical detail here that God not only chooses Jacob, but specifically chooses Jacob to be the forefather of their people, of God's people. That this is a critical change in the story. And the reason why Jacob, in my mind, because Jacob refuses to let go of God. Jacob is imperfect. He knows his need, he knows his weakness, and he cries out and will not let go until you give me my blessing. And he is willing to do anything. There is nothing that he will not do in order to survive, in order to be seen, in order to be loved. You know, and, and this is the same relationship that he has with his mother, his father, his brother, and then God. And that to me is so important to this story is that it's not only that God sees the suffering, but God hears the cries. And there's something so powerful about us calling out saying, I have need. No matter, you know, how well off or how broken I am, if I try to do it on my own, I'm I'm putting a wall up. As I cry out, the moment that voice, you know, that it, it leaves my lips, the moment it even echoes in my head, that God who is closer than my next breath already hears is coming to me. Amen. I absolutely love that point. And even to the point, right, where God is always on the side of the oppressed, the blessing that Isaac gives to Esau is very specific. You will live by your sword, you will serve your brother, and when you grow restless, you will tear away his harness from your neck. Where God is so on the side of the oppressed that God will even be on the side of the people who are oppressed by the people that God used to be on the side of, right? Where God's allegiance switches to the person being mistreated. We see that throughout the Bible 
Israel too. You know, anytime that Israel is oppressing the prophets immediately, they're like, you're going to fall. God's, God's favor, God's support, protection of you. It'll come back once you're ready to cry out again. But right now, as you're the oppressor, just so you know, you're going to crumble, you're going to fall. There are so many texts in the New Testament in particular that are an analysis of power dynamics that we don't have access to at the moment that have been used in anti-Semitic ways, right? Where anti-Semitism is rooted in Christianity because it was a criticism of the current power play, the current power dynamic that Jesus is making because the people in that particular power are being oppressive to other people. And what do we do? We go and we take that oppression and use it against those people so that they are now the oppressed people once again. And so we are no longer on the side of God because rather than uplifting our Jewish siblings, we oppress them through the same sort of system that we were once fighting against. Now, speaking of oppressive systems, fathers. I have a lot of complicated feelings on this as a father. And as someone who doesn't identify with very many masculine pronouns or words or anything like that, dad is my favorite title. (laughs) And it has been the most meaningful experience of my life being a dad. I can't imagine favoring one so much over another that you would think I'm totally fine just blessing this one and not blessing my other kid. Maybe there's some gendered politics playing into that. Maybe soft boy Jacob wasn't tough enough for what Isaac thought you know, needed to happen. But to me, this is just speaking of, at best, a really bad relationship to have with your father, and at worst, an abusive one, where Rebecca is coming in here and playing the role of God in his life as the intervener, as the savior, as the interposer of herself in that Christ-like capacity, right? Or rather, we should say that Christ is interposing in a Rebecca-like position (laughs) here as this figure that needs to save Jacob from this abusive situation, this oppressive situation that he's grown up in. I think what patriarchy does, and not just patriarchy, but any system of power, it blinds us to our power. That we think that our power is the norm. It's this notion that equality to the oppressor feels like oppression. That that as the, the tables are balanced in any way, anything being restricted of, it's not even like rights, but power over. That power over, that dominion, that imperial you know, role is being taken away, is being alleviated from the oppressed. That feels like oppression you know, to the person who's on top, because it feels like they're losing something, even though they never should have had it. Anyway, all that to say, as I read this story, and again, this is just my personal take, I don't see Isaac as being bad. I don't see him as being malicious. Let me put it that way. I see him being as ignorant to his own child, that he doesn't even recognize the way that he's harming Jacob by his emotional neglect, by his favoritism. And so if anything, that subtlety actually speaks even more to how much we need to be aware of our positionality. You know, that that it can be just as harmful if we are passive in our power as compared to being actively malicious. Going with a direction with that, when you were talking about how any kind of equalization is feels like oppression to, to the oppressor, I look back and I read Jacob as being oppressed, and I read Esau as being an oppressor, and I read him as a bully, and a bully in the sense who plays the victim when things aren't going their way. Because looking at the larger larger scheme of things, like I think it's important to think about when these stories are being told and who they're being told. You know, Micah, you, you brought up how the, the Bible is written by an oppressed people, right? There's oral traditions, but a lot of these are taking final form during the Babylonian exile. So Jacob positioned where he is, I think seeing him as an underdog and oppressed, 
he saw as the bully. But in the grand scheme of things, okay, so Jacob steals, quote unquote, steals the birthright. But when he comes back later and he tries to give Esau a gift, Esau's like, I have so many flocks, I don't need it. Well, where did he get it from? Jacob didn't really get the birthright. He came back with his own wealth that he made in Laban's household and he never goes home again. And looking at the blessing and where Isaac says, you know, your younger brother is going to serve you. And Isaac seems to have seriously misunderstood some of that because his is a lot more militant and oppressive of passing on the blessing than when God talks about it. You know, and he says to Esau, you know, you'll serve him, but then you'll throw off the yoke. Well, no, there's no good archaeological evidence correlation that other than like King Ahab and Omri that Israel had any of the conquest or military might that they that they claim to have in the Bible or they tell the stories about themselves, right? But who doesn't want to talk themselves up? And but then even in the biblical narrative, when, when is Israel in charge of Edom? It may be under Solomon, uh, but that's, you know, there's no, um, but in the book of Judges, it's actually Edom that tends to have lordship over Israel. And so even that blessing, as Isaac tells it, doesn't come true. Esau is having this big emotional moment about all these things he's lost and he's playing the victim. You know, it's an equalization, but it feels like oppression to him. It's not, you know, what he thinks he lost. He didn't really lose. This tension, this relationship between Israel and Edom that plays out through the Old Testament is so fascinating to me, grounded in this story here where there's obviously this strife Esau wants to kill Jacob there is somewhat of a reconciliation but you know that that tension remains in the air so we have texts like in Deuteronomy I don't remember exactly what chapter but the Israelites are specifically instructed to be in good relationship with Edom because it says they are your brothers there, you know, that relationship continues to be perpetuated. And what happens, narrative shifts, and you start to get this more aggressive, judgmental, and even talking about the oppression of Edom, even though historically, Edom was a tiny, tiny little tribe. They didn't have power. They wouldn't have, you know, had the capacity to rule Israel or even be a threat at all compared to, you know, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, whatnot. But it was because of the Babylonian exile being taken from their land that those old insecurities that were rooted in their, you know, ancestral forefather came up. So even though you had these much greater threats, fear was God's going to take back the birthright and give it back to Edom. And so the narrative shifts where they start to judge Edom heavily, malice, it's, you know, sinfulness, and then also the threat that they pose. But, you know, historically, that just wasn't the case. It was the people who are carrying the, the trauma of their forefather. That's just a good example of how, you know, oppression pays it backward think because coming out of that situation and retelling these narratives and having these fears, you know, okay, we're in exile in Babylon or Assyria's in charge of us and how can we fight back against them? They destroyed our city. Well, let's pick on Edom, you know, and, and that's that's the way sometimes oppression tends to perpetuate is instead of focusing my effort on what is actually the problem in front of me, I find a scapegoat. I find someone that I can let out those bad feelings all of the aggression I might feel, anger, hurt, whatever, on somebody else that I can exercise power over. And that definitely isn't how corporations work today or anything. Um, but <laughs> I, I just love that idea, you know, that that hurt people hurt people. And going back to that trauma, right, where in this text, Jacob's resistance to Rebecca is really only, uh, what if my father thinks that I'm making fun of him? Well, why would Jacob be concerned about that? Why would he be concerned about that? Well, because in Isaac's self-understanding, back in Genesis, back in Genesis 25, there is this story of Ishmael making fun of Isaac. And so, and that's why Sarah sent off 
off Ishmael and Hagar is because Ishmael was making fun of him. And so like there's this bullying that happened in Isaac's life that Jacob is keenly attuned to, right? It is so very aware of that you just have to imagine Esau would never think of, where Jacob is very aware of his father's triggers and doesn't want to be seen as potentially igniting those, right? That certainly relates very closely to me as things that I would very, would avoid doing so that I don't anger and trigger my father, you know, in these things. I don't talk about being queer when I'm back at home because then it's going to be a literally 24-hour argument where we're going back into the Bible and pointing out every possible verse and every possible interpretation of the Greek and the Hebrew to talk about whether or not it's talking about gay people, right? And, and I've had to avoid it by just saying, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to talk about this huge part of my life with my father because of this boundary that we have, right? And here, it seems to me like Jacob is setting up that same boundary and saying, like, what if I cross that? What if I just get all of this anger, get all of this abuse that he seems to have been storing up from his relationship with Ishmael? Maybe he's angry because his father put him onto an altar to be sacrificed to God, and his dad seemed like he was going to do it until God showed up with a goat. I imagine that would possibly trigger some, <laughs> some anger, some emotional responses that would be trauma that then gets passed on to your children. There's such an interesting flexion on this text, and it's me think that you know, the way that Jacob is tricking Isaac could just have well approached him and said, look, father, I really need your love in a way that I'm not receiving. I really need your support because right now Esau is bullying me and treating me poorly, or I need you to make sure that the structure, this familial patriarchy, the way that it was designed by God to flourish, I need you to step up and make sure that's happening so that I can be well. He could have said that in some ways, not on an emotional way, <laughs> uh, that might have been easier. <laughs> but like you're saying, emotionally, because of trauma, because of family dynamics, because of negative side of patriarchy, which is this is just the way things are, that this is our role and that is your role. And, you know, whether it be separated by sex or separated by familial role, this is the role of the firstborn son. I'm sorry, son, you weren't the firstborn. Like, you know, you know there can be all of these narratives that Jacob is having to wrestle through and coming to the conclusion that it is, in fact, only way or the safest way for him to get what he needs is to by tricking his father that word safety i think is an important one and and going back to micah's your comparison that you talked about your relationship with your father you know he could ask could he go ask you know, it's a, i think it is a question of safety but i don't think he could you know isaac trembles violently afterward he favors this brood of a son he has these triggers as you said it's it's the way that seems safe for queer people who are in unsafe households you know do things when we look at things in a very virtue-based morality, lying is bad, right? But you have people in households where they're not safe who are technically lying to their family every day. And I don't think that's bad. I think their safety is more important. And a voice I would want to bring into the conversation, so talking about liberation theology, Miguel de la Torre, if anyone wants to look him up, every book of his is pretty much on the margins, on the margins, on the margins. But one of them, ethics on the margins, he talks about, you know, what we can learn from the ethics of people who are on the margins. And he talks talks about, as he's introducing these concepts, he talks about his mom. So his mom's Cuban immigrant. She comes to America with her family. She doesn't speak English. She doesn't have a work history. And she goes out to restaurants and she says, yes, I speak English. And yes, I've waited tables. And she lies 
to get a job from a very binary good evil lying is evil that's evil right if she didn't her family would starve and so it's it's actually a good that she did this that she did this thing that would be considered trickery and so in people in these oppressive situations for the sake of their safety would do things that don't have the options to not do the thing i think that's how jacob's acting here and i think that's very evident when he says what if he thinks i'm making fun of him what if he curses me instead he is very afraid of the consequence of what would happen i love that point and i <laughs> makes me think of Sean Valjean and Les Mis because I am that bitch. And um, <laughs> how can it be a sin to steal a loaf of bread when your family is dying? We, we can't think binaries. We can't think dualistically that things are either one or the other. And the reality, and this is the framework that I prefer when thinking about sin, it's not just a list of wrongdoings. It's not legal context that you have, you know, these laws that have been broken and whatnot, but that we actually think about it in terms of the rupture in right relationship. And the reality is that can accidentally rupture relationship, not just about intent. It's also about action. I can have no good choices to make. The, you know, the context we're describing is like, it's one of survival and rarely in true circumstances of survival, is there a perfect path? You know, we, we have to clamor, we have to play the trickster, we have to cause harm. I know the language of sin has such heavy baggage, but if you can, with me for a second, like we can look at this story and be like, yeah, Jacob sinned against his brother and sinned against his father for lying. Yet we can also honor is the righteous need to be loved and to be whole and that those things can exist at the same time. And so when I see this story, and this is going to be my little uh, Geminist soapbox <laughs> for a quick second. For those who, who don't know, I consider myself to be the, I suppose, the forerunner of Geminist theology, a, a branch of theology that reflects on God from the contextual vantage point of the twin. And I'm an identical twin for, for the record. And so when I read this text, what I see is a mirroring that in you know ancient understandings, and this was the extent beyond Judaism, but in, in an ancient cultural context, the twin had so much simplicity rich, rich symbolism that probably could best be described as a mirroring. In a mirror, you're seeing the same thing, but you're seeing it as the opposite. So we have the splitting of one into diversity, but it is meant to ref reflect and hold together that wholeness. In the way that Adam and Eve are, you know, two parts of the same whole, they're, you know, it's the half that is coming off, but it is meant that the two should be one, and that together that those two would hold that oneness. But what we see in the story is one of trauma and one of disconnect that Jacob and Esau do not carry that intended wholeness together. There is rupturing, there is severance, and God sees and views the one who is marginalized most in this relationship and uplifts him and centers him in the narrative of God's people. What we don't see in the Hebrew Bible, but we do see in the New Testament in the Gospel of Mark in particular, that as Jesus is calling or er, er, uh, preaching and the nations are assembling people from all across the region, including from Idumea, which are the descendants, the direct descendants of the Edomites, we see the people of Esau coming back into the fold in the narrative of Jesus, that the two that have been separated but were never meant to be separated, never meant to be uh, rejected or, or marginalized, even the oppressor saw is welcomed back in so that they can be whole again. A couple of people who have reached out to me and asked me why I say shalom instead of peace, right? And it's because English is a stupid language, because shalom is not 
just peace. It is may you be whole. It is wholeness. It is peace. It is justice. It's a word that wraps all of those things up into a wholeness, into a completeness that is not just a may you live in peace under the peace of the American empire, which will kill all these people in order to maintain a quote unquote peace, right? It is peace of wholeness. It is the peace of right relationship. It is the peace and justice of bringing people back together in this amazing way. I, I love that Geminist theology. That is absolutely fantastic. And <laughs> we should do a whole podcast just on Geminist theology, if you haven't already on your there, there is an episode <laughs> on Geminist theology on Barefoot okay. Um Eventually, it will be a book, too. I'm a fraternal twin, oh, really? but I, don't, uh, I haven't <laughs> thought about it as deeply as you have. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. What are the chances we happen to have two twins on, <laughs> on this? Maybe that's why y'all chose, maybe y'all chose this episode on purpose, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, it all, I don't know about you, Char, but it always has resonated with me some. Say a disclaimer. I don't know if my brother's ever going to listen to this. I love him very much. He's one of my best friends. I have a brother as well. Don't want to leave him out. Um, but my fraternal twin brother is one of my best friends. Love him very much. When we were kids, we were absolute enemies. And so it's very it's very important. I'm I'm the older one, and that, that is actually very important. You discounted that earlier, Micah, but that's, that's very important. <laughs> very important that you're the older twin? Yes, yeah. Okay, I apologize. As a kid, you know, I saw myself more in the Jacob rule because, you know, and him in the Esau rule because he was always bigger than me and he could always beat me up and he would. And so I would, you know, and I would just be horrible in a way that I would say horrible things to me. It's like, okay, you can give me a wedgie while I can, you know, make you feel bad about yourself. So yeah, I don't know if this story resonates with you at all for that reason, Char, but I don't view it that way now. But you no, know, it, it really does. It really does. And I'll be brief on this personal anecdote. But uh, when I was born, twin came out first. They went fine, and I was stuck under my mama's rib. And the minutes passed, minutes passed. Eventually, they came to try to find a pulse with an ultrasound and found that I was dying. My heart rate had dropped to about 30, which for a baby is ridiculous. <laughs> and so they performed an emergency C-section and rescued me, and I was able to you know, survive from that. But there are a lot of epigenetic changes that take place in the womb and then in birth. And for those who are not familiar, epigenetics are basically uh, environmental factors that impact our genetics. And when we talk about trauma, trauma actually codes itself onto the genome. Wow. And so you can generationally pass down your trauma based on what you've been through. But point being, in this moment, I feel like I actually developed a Jacob complex because I, my mom describes how I was an anxious kid way that my twin was not. And I've always had these insecurities. It has nothing to do with the bullying from my twin because they have always been there for me and, and been one of my greatest, my greatest, truly my greatest support. Um, and yet there's always been this seed of doubt, this seed of insecurity. So I find such great comfort in this story because as awful as I can feel that I feel like I'm not worthy of being loved, that I am the reject, I was the one who was stuck, deserved to die, whatnot, that I hear that in my cries, God sees me, says, you who feel like you are rejected, you who feel like you're lost, you're the one that I call my own. I will make damn sure that you always know it. Even as you try to pull away from me, that I will continue to pursue you. I've made my covenant with you and I love you. And that to me is is one of the greatest gifts that scripture has offered. Amen and amen. As someone who's not a twin, I think the thing that I, I take away the most from this story is the fact that coming out of fundamentalism, God as father was not an image that worked for me. That was a God who was angry, and that was a God who was going to judge me and condemn me. And that is very much so what I feel reading the story of Isaac, is I understand 
what if God thinks that I'm making fun of him? And that's why I don't often refer to God as him. (laughs) Most of the time, God shows up to me as Rebecca, not as Isaac. Most of the time, God shows up to me as a mother who loves me, as a mother hen who takes me under her wing and won't let me go. And as big and as powerful as I might ever feel, I am always just that small chick who could nestle up into my mother hen. I don't remember who said it, but just the idea that God can show up as what you need when you need it, especially when you are at your lowest, especially when you have nothing, especially when you have nothing left to give, that that is most often where you will experience God, in my experience, the most deeply. Mike, I just want to thank you for letting us be on this podcast. It's really such a treat to hear from brilliant minds who have so much knowledge and are helping me learn even more about a story that I love. So thank you for that. If I can end with just one thought, and I think this is a controversial thought. I think this story helps us wrestle with this. And so I encourage you, both of you and and the listeners to consider this as well, that the oppressor, not some separate who is our enemy. In the wholeness, that shalom of humanity, they are a part of ourselves. And that true healing, true liberation does not come at the destruction of the oppressor. It certainly comes at the destruction of their oppression, the the cause, the the empire, capitalism, all of these forces that are non-real. They're not not a spiritual reality of God's self. These all are our calling to destroy, but the other, the person, our calling is to love them. When Jesus says, love your enemies, I don't think that's to placate us into some form of passivity. It's this overwhelmingly powerful sense that we need to look through all of the violence and see that they are also a hurt person who is therefore hurting people. And that True liberation is recognizing that and loving them through that pain, that we can hold them accountable, we can take away their power, we can do all these things which might come across to them and to society as violent, but in our heart, in our spirit, if we are oriented towards love, that is the only way that we are truly going to liberate ourselves and others. Amen. The liberation of oppression frees all of us. It doesn't just free the people who are the most oppressed, it also frees me from the inhumanity that comes with doing the oppression to them. And it frees the wealthy by freeing them of the inhumanity that has captured them. And we are the most fully divine when we are the most fully human. It's not a competition in Jesus's nature between being fully human and wholly divine. It is the fulfillment of humanity that is the miracle of the incarnation of Christ. Well, friends, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I have so appreciated this conversation. Y'all are absolutely fantastic. Please, please come back anytime you feel led to do so. So Matt, Char, you're absolutely wonderful. And I look forward to having you again sometime soon. So, <laughs> And thank you, dear listener, for all of the amazing ways that you continue to support this podcast. We are going up and up in the Apple podcast religion charts. So as of right now, we are in the top thousand. I think we could get the top hundred. There's some some like loser who rants about COVID who's just above us. If you could go to Apple Podcast and make sure that we're higher than that dude, that would be great. So thank you, thank you, thank you <laughs> for that and all the other ways that you support us. Now, pass Micah, take it away. Thank you, future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. 
please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go, and let us build a world where we are all free of oppression, where we build the shalom with one another by seeing each other not as opposing, but as part of one holy whole. Shalom. I sometimes I wonder if the whole managerial class exists because we couldn't find enough therapists.